Hello everyone, this is Tara and this is God Talk with Tara. We're going to start off with prayer. Father God, thank you. Thank you for all the work that you are doing in the world. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Father, pouring out all across the globe. Thank you for touching the hearts of this next generation with your love and your mercy, with your truth, Father, with your invitation into relationship with you. Thank you for the peace that is stilling anxiety, Lord God, for the love that is lifting depression, for the joy that is overcoming feelings of suicide. Lord God, we are in awe of what you do. And I pray God tonight that you would make me small and make Jesus big. That you would get me out of the way, Lord God, and magnify yourself. That you would give me your words to speak to your people and that ears would be open to hear what you have to say. Lord God, I am deeply humbled at the opportunity you have given me to speak to people. I am deeply humbled that you would use these lips to speak your words. I pray, God, that you would keep them ready to share your love and grace. And in particular tonight, Father, I pray that you would keep me humble and that your words would be honest and true and real and none of me. We thank you, God, for all that you do. And I thank you, Lord, for the assurance that you will answer these prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, I am starting a little bit earlier than normal, and I really was not sure what I was going to preach about until I came in here and sat down, and I was still not sure what I was going to preach about. Um because the reality was I was sort of expecting to go back to some of the things that God had been talking about while we were in Kentucky. I was expecting to talk a little more about some of the things that I had seen there. And I do hope at some point to testify to those things because it's, it's important for us to carry the testimonies of what God is doing out into the world. And I have been so blessed to see so many doing just that. However, that's not where God took me today. Um, it is where I thought I was going this morning. There, there are several topics that came up. Um, and yet today, as I was on Facebook, and maybe I should learn to stay off Facebook, but I needed to be on there for something earlier today. And I was skimming the things that are being posted about what is happening in Asbury because the, the world has taken notice that God is on the scene and the news has shown up and the chattering classes all across social media have begun to weigh in um, frequently with skepticism and oftentimes with criticism. And it is interesting to see. And I ran across a post earlier today that a friend of mine had pointed out that, you know, it seemed awfully small of people to be criticizing a move where people were confessing to the Lord and praising the Lord and there was reconciliation and there was repentance and there was deliverance and there was worship. And it seemed awfully strange to her that Christians would be denigrating such a thing. 
And it struck me as to why, as I was scrolling through some of the comments on her, on her post, because over the years, I have been connected to many people on Facebook. When I began on Facebook, I started with politics. This was, like I said, back during the Tea Party days, the early days of that. And I built a network of people on Facebook that were into conservative politics. And there was a very large overlap when I shifted focus toward God. There was an overlap of people who were also Christian. And so I have a lot of Christian friends on Facebook. And through them, when I first really had shifted over to studying God and when I was more in pursuit of faith, I made many more connections with other Christians on Facebook or those who, um, who profess Christ. And I was not very discerning in those that I connected with in those early days. I was delighted with God and I was chasing him as hard as I could. And so I had an awfully diverse group of uh, people in my circle, theologically speaking and doctrinally speaking. And it took me a long time to recognize the things that did not ring true and why over the years. And so there are people within that circle that I have unfollowed or unfriended over the years. Um, and I want to kind of touch on that right now, because one of the things that what's going on at Asbury has brought to the surface is an issue within the Christian community that really needs to be addressed because it is prevalent but unknown amongst so many in in the Christian community. And so there was one gentleman particularly that comes to mind that I had gotten connected to and I was I would listen to what he was saying a lot and I would interact with the the scriptural and biblical things that he would post and discuss and the discussions that he was having. Um, and I allowed myself to absorb a lot of information from him because he seemed to be very sound in what he was saying and what he was teaching until it began to occur to me that he was what is typically termed a cessationist in, in theological circles. And what that basically means is that he is a person who does not believe that the Holy Spirit is currently operating in the world, that there's no such thing as spiritual gifts, that those ended with the last of the apostles or at the very latest, the last of the apostles' disciples, um, that God does not do signs and wonders anymore because those were only done during the time of the apostles in order to um, sign his work, so to speak, with the, with the scripture, um, to prove the truth of the gospel that they were preaching. God provided signs and wonders. And now that we have the whole of the canon of scripture, there's no longer a need for such things is the, the theory behind cessationism. Um, and that's a nutshell. It's not something I've studied deeply, but I have studied it. And that is the nutshell basics of, of what cessationists believe. And you have these folks throughout many, many denominations because it is a 
It's actually a function, I think, of enlightenment thinking. It's a function of the modernist perspective on the world that says that there is nothing beyond the here and the now and everything is in the tangible. God has withdrawn on the beliefs of the cessationists, on the beliefs of the rationalists, God never was, or he has withdrawn. This is where you get the watchmaker version of God, where he wound up the world and he set it on its path and he has taken his hands off and is no longer personally involved. The problem with this is the cessationists also will tell you that you need personal salvation in order to get to heaven. And so if it is a, a distant God who is not personally interacting in the world, but you still need personal salvation through Christ, there is a problem fundamentally with that understanding of scripture. Um, and it, it creates hopelessness. It creates hopelessness, which is, I think, probably why God wanted me to speak about this today. So... There are a lot of divisions in the church. Anybody who has studied church history or the present day church will discover that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of denominations in the world. There are thousands of Christian denominations in the world. Um, there are an infinite number, it seems like, of um, non-denominational churches out there. There are uh, an untold number of variations of Protestant faiths that came out of the Reformation. There are a couple of different Catholic denominations out there. You have the Roman Catholics, but you also have the Eastern Orthodox. Um, you have the Ethiopian Church, which is sort of an offshoot of Catholicism. Um, you have uh, the Charismatic Movement within Catholicism. And then you have all of the Protestant groups that came out of that. And what you will find is that people divide over the strangest of things. Um, one of the big issues that people divide over all of the time is um, communion and baptism. What those things mean, how you do them. And it's an interesting thing because the more I have studied theology and the more I have studied um, denominations and religion and the breaking down of the body of Christ and all of these things. The thing I have come to realize is that on the central thing, the central sacraments that all Christians agree on, that baptism and communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, that those two things are sacraments that have been commanded by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and therefore they should be practiced by Christians. Now, there are a lot of other things that the Roman Catholic Church might call a sacrament. Uh, there are a lot of other practices that Protestants would call necessary practices for faith, um, not for salvation, but for faith. And, and so there are a lot of other practices that come into play, but at the core, communion and baptism are agreed on by all parties that that is a part of the thing that we are commanded as Christians to participate in as part of the body of Christ. And realistically speaking, that is really the only agreement that is necessary as Christians, that these things are required and, and given to us as, as sacraments, as commands of our Lord and Savior. And 
what those things do, what they mean, how they are performed is really irrelevant. Now I'm going to get in so much trouble with so many people because so many people hold these things very dear to their hearts. The Catholics believe that the, the bread and the wine are literally transformed into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you do not believe that, you cannot take communion with them. And more importantly, you're not receiving the salvific requirement of the Lord's Supper. In other words, in Catholic doctrine, you have to eat the physical body and drink the physical blood of the Lord Jesus Christ as part of the process of salvation. In more Baptist circles or Calvinist circles, there is a rejection of anything to do with what they call transubstantiation, which is that whole transformation into body and blood. And there's there's no real significance as far as um, any spiritual element that happens within communion. It is simply a command of Christ that you eat and drink in remembrance of the Last Supper that he instituted with his disciples. That was a foreshadowing of the cross that was coming uh, the following morning. So you have one end of this where you have it as completely a symbol and nothing more than that. It is a remembrance. And then you have the other end of it where it is believed to be a complete and total physical transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Methodists somewhere in the middle there where we don't really believe that the blood and uh, body are physically present in the elements, um, but we also don't think they're just a sign. We invite the Holy Spirit to come into that process. We invite him to make the bread and the wine for us, the body and blood of Christ. And in that process, we believe that the Holy Spirit does something. I could not explain to you what it is that we believe he does, but we believe he does something that sanctifies those elements and imbues them with a binding property, with a way through the Holy Spirit that binds us to other Christians around the world, that it it, it manifests the unity of the Spirit that I'm going to talk about in just a minute, that that is a part of what happens during communion. We call it a means of grace by which we encounter the triune God, that he is present in those elements and that we can encounter him there. And so that's, that's the middle of the road. Um, view of what communion is, but the reality is, is none of those things matter from a salvation perspective. We all profess Jesus Christ as our Lord. We all believe that he died and was raised from the dead and that his death was an atonement for our sins, that he redeemed us out of the slavery to sin and that he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God, the father almighty. And that communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's supper is our means of responding to his command to remember that sacrifice that he made for us. That's communion. That's that that is at its core. And so what we think happens in that makes not a little bit of difference to anything. Now, I know there's the whole drinking condemnation on yourself. That's a whole different story. Um, that isn't this. Okay. That that might 
bear on whether it's an open or a closed table, but even then it usually doesn't because the people that worry about that usually have a more open table. They're not going to ask you whether you're part of their church. Um, and the same goes with baptism. So you have, on the one hand, a very high perspective of baptism where you believe that baptism can only be done once. So the Methodists, you're only allowed to ever be baptized one time. And that is because there is a belief that God moves in the baptism, that, that everything that happens in baptism, that it's more than symbolic and everything that happens within baptism is something that God does. And so to be baptized more than once in a Methodist tradition is essentially saying that God screwed up the first time and you got to do it again. On a more Baptist tradition, they're very adamant that you have not been baptized if you have not been dunked under the water as a symbol of dying with Christ and being resurrected, right? Um, but it's only a symbol and you can do it as many times as you want. And these differences in how we understand baptism also are completely and totally irrelevant to whether or not we're all part of the body of Christ. It, it doesn't matter what we think happens in baptism. We all believe that baptism is a symbol and an opportunity for us to meet the Lord and something we are commanded to do by Christ, but it's not our salvation. Jesus Christ himself is, is, is our salvation, right? And so what we believe about these things doesn't really impact necessarily how we interact with the body of Christ. And it doesn't necessarily impact how we interact with God. They're sacraments that we all hold in common and we can all love each other even though we disagree. Oftentimes we don't, which is why there are so many splits, but that's beside the point. There are other doctrinal issues though that have an impact on how we relate to God and how we relate to Christ and that have an impact on whether or not Jesus Christ and the gospel are actually good news. And this is where I feel like God was talking to me today about talking about this concept of cessationism. It's not the only issue. There's a lot of doctrines out there that are partial understandings. They're, they're overly focused on the wrong things. They're heretical. Um, there are a lot of things that don't match up with scripture. And this is the other thing about the baptism stuff and the Lord's Supper stuff. You can find parts of scripture to support all of those different perspectives, and none of them contradicts what scripture says. That's one of the reasons why it's been argued over for so long, I imagine. None of them really contradicts what scripture says. So there are other doctrines that do. And cessationism is one of those other doctrines that contradicts the whole of scripture. It contradicts the story of God in scripture. It contradicts the character of God in scripture. 
And so we're going to come and look at some, some scripture about this real quick. Um, so in Hebrews 13, this is where God brought me to. In verse 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Um, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I think I probably read that one further than I meant to. The main part that that really was the focus of what God brought me to tonight, what brought me here was the do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. But right before that is the verse that says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. We're going to come back to that in just a minute because that's why, that's one of the things that's very important to understand. So the next thing that God brought to mind was the actual verse I'd been looking for when I stumbled on the diverse teachings um, there. I love Google search sometimes. So in Ephesians 4, you get this beautiful passage where God talks about the gifts he gave to the church. And in this case, this list of the gifts given by the Spirit are not so much the spiritual gifts we think of, but they're people. And then we move on to why God gave those. So starting in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes." Rather speaking, the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, Paul goes on to then discuss the new life as a Christian. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He talks about putting on the righteousness of Christ. He talks about getting rid of all kinds of impurity, um, putting away all falsehood and giving no opportunity to the devil. And he says all of this to the, the church at Ephesus 
inviting them to walk in the fullness of a life redeemed by Christ, of a life free from the power of sin in their bodies and in their minds and in their hearts. Abel, he would not be commanding them to walk in righteousness if they were not able to do so. But we know from Paul's other writings that on our own, we actually are not able to do so. As human beings, the reality is, as we may know the good things we are supposed to do, but we will always fall short of being able to do them on our own. And Paul, at the beginning of chapter four, explains this to us. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, is what gives unity to the body of Christ. It is what allows us to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. It allows us to walk in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And it is necessary for us to have the spirit in us in order for us to be able to do these things. We are incapable on our own and we know it. Now, there is a strain that will sit there and tell you, but, you know, once Jesus has saved you, you can go do the right things. If that were true, if I were able to save myself, if we were able to save ourselves, if we were able to conquer the power of sin in our own lives, if we were able on our own to do these things, the cross would never have been necessary. And if we need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then God cannot be distant because that's not a personal relationship. The point, the point of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came to restore us to right relationship with God. And he did not intend for that to be in some distant future, or he would not have told us to walk in the reality of that now. Paul would not have spent pages and pages and pages of writing to the churches that he had established to tell them to walk worthy of Christ, to tell them to put off their old lives and to put on the righteousness of Christ, to walk in the ways of, of God, to be full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He would not have told the church at Galatia that they should be full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit if he did not believe that the Holy Spirit would dwell in them. The point of Christ was to restore our relationship with God. And so for us to look at what that looks like, we look back into Genesis and what we see is God sitting down with Adam as he created all of the animals and brought them before Adam to name them. We see the Lord sitting with Adam. How long do you think that took to make all the animals? I know it says a day, but you get the sense in that account 
where God brought all the animals before Adam, that the naming took a lot longer than a day. That he sat with Adam and talked with Adam. And then he created Eve and he walked with them in the cool of the garden. You get the sense that he spoke with Adam and Eve, that he spent time with Adam and Eve, that it was his presence that was the point. That it was his presence that enabled them to grow. It was his presence that gave them life. And that's what Jesus aimed to restore. And rather than a garden, he restored that relationship by sending the Holy Spirit. And he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to all who believed in him, including those far off, not just those that were his disciples, but those who would believe because of his disciples. And that is not just the generation right after the disciples, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if you believe that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and you believe that he has invited all of creation to be reconciled through God, through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, then he is still making that offer to everyone, and he would not withhold the key functional piece of what allows us to walk in reconciliation with God here and now, of what allows us to be free of the bondage of sin. If you tell people that Jesus Christ loves them and that they need to be good because Jesus has freed them from sin, but you tell them that they need to do that under their own power, that that's not something that the Holy Spirit is going to do for them and in them and with them, that he does not bring transformation, that they need to bring transformation themselves, then I will tell you, you condemn them just as surely as secularism does. And just as surely as all of those atheists out there who are telling them and the existentialists who are saying to them, you need to make yourself new. You need to recreate yourself. You need to be better today than you were yesterday. And if you do not, if you are not transforming yourself into the image that we tell you you should be, then you are a failure and you might as well just die. The thing that is killing our kids, the thing that is giving them depression and anxiety and all of these things is a world that tells them that they are perfectible, but that they have to perfect themselves. And they fail at it miserably every single day. And they see that everybody around them is failing at that miserably every single day. There is nobody in their lives that is trying to be perfect, that has achieved that goal. They're failing miserably and they know that it's not possible. And so when you tell them that Jesus says the same thing to them, that every atheist out there on the planet says to them, that is not good news. And it's not true. And it's not biblical. Jesus doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He doesn't say, fix yourself. He doesn't say, you need to do better and you are able. He says, there is none not righteous, no, none who is righteous, no, not one. Yet I have come, I have come to save 
the sinners. I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to bring you out of darkness into my light. I have come to set you free from all sin, from all shame, from all condemnation. I have come to draw you into relationship with the Father in heaven who loves you. And when I go where he is, he will send another helper to usher you into all truth, to bring to mind the things I have told you and taught you, to help you walk in the way that you're supposed to walk. That is the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ, to point people to Jesus Christ, to give his people the ability to be obedient servants to Christ. So for those who have struggled with this sense of the Holy Spirit is not here, or for those who doubt things like what's going on at Asbury, because you don't believe that God still moves in the world, I want to remind you that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was there in all three persons at the beginning. The world was made through Jesus Christ, by God the Father as he spoke it into existence, while the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. And he will be there at the end, in all three of his parts, in all three persons of the Trinity, you see him in Revelation. And he was there in the middle when Jesus came to redirect the whole of creation back towards God. When you see the son baptized and come up out of the water and the spirit alights on him as a dove and the heavens open and the father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. In all of the history of scripture, there has never been a time when the Holy Spirit has not been present in the world. There has never been a time when Jesus has not been a part of creation and when God the Father has not been presiding from heaven. That is our God. He is eternal and he does not change. He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that is why we have our hope in Jesus Christ and we know that the Spirit comes so that we can fulfill the call he places on our lives because that's the fulfillment of his promise. And that is a critical part of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father God, I pray that you would continue to pour your Holy Spirit out. I pray for all of those at Asbury currently. I pray for the leaders there. I pray for the leadership of the school. I pray for those that are leading and ministering to the students there. I pray for those from Seedbed who have come to help with organization. I pray, Father God, for every single person that you have given responsibility for stewarding 
the time and the space that you have granted us, Father God, where we can come to meet with you. I pray, Lord God, for every single person that has gone out from Asbury and that will go out from Asbury back to their homes that have come there to meet you and see you and be filled with you and be touched by you, Father God. I pray repentance will continue. I pray conviction of sin will continue. I pray confession will continue. And I pray, God, that restoration will continue and that they will carry that back to their homes, back to their churches, back to their communities, Father God, back to their college campuses, back to their job sites, back everywhere they go, Lord God. I pray they would carry that sense of repentance, the sense of your mercy, the sense of your love and your grace that is calling us out of darkness, that is breaking the bondage of sin, Father, and that they would be lit on fire for you, Lord God, and that that would be contagious. I pray, Lord God, that this is the beginning, not just of a little revival, that sustains us for a little while. I pray, God, that this is the beginning of another one of your great awakenings because, Lord God, we need you. We need you now. We need your spirit in us and through us. We need to be connected, Father God, with the rest of the body. Our joints need to be working together, Lord God, so we can build ourselves up in love, so that we can grow into the head of Christ, so that we function, Lord God, as your church here on earth, so that your kingdom comes as we move through the world, Lord God. I pray that you would come, Lord, that you would fill us, Father, so that we can walk, Lord God, according to your purposes, so that we can walk as your light in the world, so that people will know the good news of Jesus Christ, the living God, and that you would transform and heal the people of this nation, the people of our neighboring nations, the people of the nations in South America and in Asia and Europe and Australia and Africa and all around the world, God. We just pray that this would be a time of great awakening, that your people would know you, Lord God. And that we would know you so well that we cannot help but shout your praise and sing your praise and love one another with a perfect godly love. Lord, we ask and we seek and we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Be blessed and be a blessing.